Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's because of your wounds, the ransom that was paid on our behalf, that we're standing here, sitting here today. Certainly, we love you. I think many people came to these doors today to gather because we love you. But we're here because of the deep love the Father has shown to us. We love because you first loved us. So we're here to worship you call out to your name, to pray, to sing, to fellowship. And now we get to hear you speak from your word. What a privilege it is to have your word. Just even a few days ago, I got to see a video, Lord, of, of some of your people across the planet receiving a box of Bibles in their own language for the very first time. Oh, the joy that was on their faces. Lord, I pray we would have the same joy to know we get to hear you speak from Holy Scripture here today. But we know, Lord, that it, it won't change us unless you open our eyes, that, that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. That's what we ask you to do by your Spirit today. Turn on the light switch of our eyes and our hearts and our ears that we may see and understand and, be, and, and believe and be transformed by this powerful word. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who was wounded for us. Amen. You can be seated, and I want to invite you to open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Luke 22:39. And I invite you to follow along as, as I read aloud here this morning. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46 says this, And he came out and went. And what, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Amen. We're starting a new series here today. I'm so excited about it. We're just two weeks away from Easter, if you can believe it. Uh, it's exciting times for God's people as we remember and reflect upon all that Jesus has done for us. But I want to ask you a question this morning. What's that one thing that you just cannot stand to do? <laughs> What's the one thing that you just cannot stand to do? You avoid it. You procrastinate to get it done. You dread it. You flee from it. You run from it. Maybe it's filing your taxes Right now, tax season, right? We all love to file our taxes, right? About cleaning your gutters. It's probably something that you ought to do, especially here. You get some rain and get leaves. You got to clean out those gutters. Uh, maybe on your job, you have to fill out expense reports or quarterly reports, and you just dread those things, right? I used to work for a plumbing wholesaler, and I, I hated it every January. Uh, the annual inventory, counting little pieces, little fixtures, little, uh, little pieces of, of tube and pipe and all these things. And you have to count those, and it's just, it's awful. I hated it, going in on a Saturday for that stuff. Or 
Maybe you fight over who will take out the garbage in your house or who's going to change the baby's diaper, right? You just hate doing that. Uh, my mom, she hates dusting. She hates dusting. Yeah, that was her that just said amen. In fact, she's got this clever little magnet on her refrigerator. Dust is just God's way of providing protective uh, covering for your furniture, right? Yeah, she hates dusting. And in fact, she hates it so much, she was willing to pay. She's got some of our young people that are going over to her house here soon as part of the youth fundraiser to dust her house. Thankfully, it's not too big. Yes, thank you, our Fairfax Bible Church youth. They're, they're raising funds and doing jobs to, uh, to do some of the work that we just don't want to do, right? <laughs> Uh, when I was young, oh, I, I tell you, this is kind of silly. I hated going to the dentist. I hated it. It doesn't bother me now. And it wasn't the pain. It was all of the stuff that they put in there. And it just, I remember the fluoride paste, right? Remember that? And they had it on like that foam mouth guard thing and you'd chew down on it. I don't know, maybe they don't do that anymore. But I, but I, hated, I hated to do it because it just, it would cause this like gag reflex. And I hated it. And I dreaded it so much. I don't want to go to the dentist you hate it, you avoid it, right? So I, I'm going to give you 10 seconds, five seconds each. Turn to somebody next to you, tell them what is that one thing that you hate to do more than anything. Go ahead, I'll give you time to do it. You can talk in church. Ooh, I hear a lot of hate in the room. Lots of hate, lots of disgust. All right, all right, all right. Bring it in, bring it in, bring it in. We all have that one thing, that one thing that we hate to do. And I can see the smiles on your faces because you may be coming up with something really stupid, right? That one thing that we hate to do. How much better our lives would be, we think, if we could get out of doing that one thing again. And, and I want to get a little bit more serious now as we get into our text this morning. We all have that one thing, but Jesus is approaching a moment like this in his own life but to the infinite degree, the most extreme degree. He's come to the moment of his suffering, and he's come to the moment where he is getting prepared to die on the cross. The next several weeks, we're going to get into these, these three stories, this week, next week, and on Easter Sunday. And if you want to consider these live images, right, you, you've got those images on your phone where you can program that setting where you're taking a photo, but it's kind of live. We're going to get three live images of Jesus leading up to and including his death from the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke's goal was for his readers to see that Jesus is the one who truly fulfills what God had promised to his people. He wants, he wants his reader to know. He has one reader in mind. You can see that in Luke chapter 1. But as a broader audience, he wants us to see that God has sent his promised Messiah. He has sent his Savior to rescue, rescue humanity from sin and death. And in order to do that... In order to fulfill God's promises, Jesus had to step into our place. It's our series title. It's Jesus in our place. We're going to see how this truth that Jesus took our place in our stead, the death that we deserve to die, we're going to see how this Jesus standing in our place transforms not only, not only our lives, but we're also going to see how it transforms the lives of the ones we continue to pray for this month, as we did earlier. We want them to see these images of Jesus who stood not just in our place, but in the place of our ones as well. By the way, we're very excited. We want to give you just a small little tool to be able to invite your ones 
to church on Easter Sunday, right? You've been praying for them, having conversations with them. We've got flyers there over on the table for you. Pastor Hang, we've got a whole box full of them, right? Everybody, take at least five. Pass them out to neighbors, friends. We want you to invite your ones to come worship with us on Easter Sunday morning to celebrate the greatest event in all of human history. But but first, we're going to see these live images. And, And the first one we see this morning is of Jesus praying just before the moments of his arrest, the moments just before. And at the center of this prayer is a request. Hopefully you saw it right there in our text. Jesus prays, verse 42, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. What is Jesus talking about? Before we take a look at the whole text, we just got to ask ourselves, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? Well, there was a cup that Jesus actually shared with his disciples earlier in this chapter. In chapter 22, uh, verse 20, Jesus holds up the cup, and this is what he says in verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was, was actually taking this cup and saying, this signifies a new agreement that I'm making with humanity to be their God, to forgive their sins. And this cup, this juice that you're about to drink represents something. It represents my blood. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that this cup is going to be filled with the, with the good consequences of his death. His blood is going to redeem and do something for his people. Just a few verses before our passage, and if you've got your Bibles, you could look at it with me. Verse 37, Jesus is speaking with his, with his disciples uh, about the fact that he's going to go away, and he's telling them to get prepared. And this is what he says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus there is is saying, I've got to fulfill a work that the Father has given for me. And he's quoting Isaiah 53, verse 12. The great prophet Isaiah who lived uh, about four to five hundred years prior to Jesus even saying this. He says, I'm the one who is described in Isaiah 53. I am God's suffering servant and I'm going to be numbered with the lawbreakers. I'm going to be numbered with the transgressors. I myself am sinless. I have never broken the law, but I'm willing to fulfill God's command and his promise to his people by being numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53 describes this servant as bearing the iniquity or the the things that make us dirty and filthy before God, bearing the iniquity of sinners. Isaiah 53 says that this suffering servant would take the punishment that sinners deserved the chastisement, the punishment. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, in Isaiah and the prophets, the cup, this image of the cup is, is describing God's wrath for sin. God's saying, humanity is sinned against me. I am slow to anger, but I still get angry over sin because it's just and it's right. And God says, I will pour out the cup of my wrath upon sin as the means of justice for sin. And so this suffering servant that Jesus is describing, he's saying, I'm going to be numbered among the transgressors. He's saying, I'm going to be poured out. I'm going to drink the cup, actually, that humanity deserves for their sin and because of their shame. And and I'm going to take that punishment upon myself. And so when we ask the question, what is this cup? It's simply this. It's the cup of suffering that Jesus would experience through the shedding of his blood for the sacrifice of sins. To appease and turn God's wrath away from sinners. Jesus would experience this cup through the shedding of his blood for the sacrifice of sins. To appease and turn God's wrath away from sinners. 
This cup of suffering Jesus would endure at the hands of sinners, it, it would come under the evil powers of darkness. The cup of suffering was according to the will of God the Father to glorify the Son. Isaiah 53, again, it says, it was God's will to crush him. It was God's will to rescue sinners by the crushing of his servants. You can think of it this way. It's like a wine press, and, and Jesus willingly says, take me, Father, I will do it. And, and God the Father, in love for his Son, and love for his people, says, okay, Son, I will do this. It's according to our will, and he puts his son like a grape into the wine press and he crushes him for us. Now the disciples, they would eventually be called upon to suffer in following Jesus, but only Jesus himself, the sinless one, the son of God, the Messiah, could suffer in the place of his people. Jesus would be forsaken by God. Only he could satisfy the payment that was due for your sin, my sin, and for the sins of his disciples. Only he the suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah, could bear our sins. Only he could drink this cup. Now, many modern scholars and critics in this time of year, you'll probably see articles from magazines and whatnot on the, the real historical Jesus. And, and I think what they often try to do is they try to seek to paint a portrait of Jesus as merely a martyr. He was innocently condemned to death. It's a tragic end to a beautiful life. But th that's not the picture that the Bible portrays. It's not what we see in this live image that Luke gives us this morning. Though Jesus asked the Father to remove this cup of suffering, we see in this moment of fervent prayer that Jesus embraced the cup of suffering in our place. He wasn't just a, a passive recipient against his will. He said, no, I will receive and embrace and grasp this cup of suffering in the place of my people. And that's our big idea this morning. Jesus grasped the cup of suffering in our place. Jesus took the cup. He approached the cup. He received it willingly. And then we see also that he prepared himself to drink that cup in our place. Jesus grasped the cup of suffering in our place. We see three things from this text. The first one here this morning is that purposefully he approached the cup. Purposefully he approached a, the cup. Again, verse 39 says, Jesus went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. This was the place where he was staying during the Passion Week leading up to his arrest. Some knew it. His disciples knew it. And Judas knew it. Judas knew the place. We see in chapter 22 of Luke, in, in, earlier in the chapter, in verses 3 through 6, it says that Satan had entered into Judas called Iscariot. And Judas consented with the chief priests and the officers and, and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Well, where can you get away from the crowds in the temple? I'm going to wait until Jesus goes to that place where he hangs out with just us. On that little mount across the valley in darkness of night, that would be my opportunity. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that that's where his disciples could find him if they, if they didn't know where he was in the city, to find him on the Mount of Olives. Jesus knew that Judas would find him there. He went there on purpose. He was there on purpose. Jesus was no fool. In fact, earlier in the chapter, again, in, in Luke twenty two twenty two, Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal. Jesus knew it was coming. Jesus approached this moment. He came into this scene not by accident. Oh, whoa, what's happening here? He knew what was about to happen. 
he went there on purpose. He purposefully approached the cup. And not only that, we also get an indication that he knew what was coming because he warns his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He just told them that he would be betrayed. He just was describing to them that he would be killed. And he had just told Peter in front of all of them that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster would crow the next morning. The testing was coming. It was on the front doorstep. Jesus tells his followers, friends, brothers, get yourselves ready. I'm approaching my greatest test, my great trial, and you're going to be tested too. So what do I want you to do? Pray. Pray, get yourself ready, be purposeful with this time right now. I'm approaching it, and you're approaching it with me. Get ready. And Jesus tells them, I I want you to pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus had taught them this before. We see in Luke chapter 11, verse 4, that Jesus had taught his disciples to pray this way. Lead us not into temptation, right? You know that, the Lord's Prayer. This is how followers of Jesus prepare for the tests, the trials, the temptations that come our way. We pray with purpose. We pray with purpose, with intentionality. We pray to get ourselves ready. Jesus showed up on time, and his disciples needed to be ready and prepared for what was coming. This required intentionality, and it required purpose. Now, I'm old enough to remember the days when, you know, when you went to like a theme park or you went to the mall or you went out somewhere with a group of people, you would actually have to make the arrangements to say, hey, we're going to split up right now. I'm going to go ride that ride. You're going to go ride that ride. You're going to go to that store, whatever. And we're going to meet back here at this time, right? Does anybody remember those days? Because you couldn't just like wander off from each other and then be able to know where each other were and say, oh yeah, I'll meet you up there, right? Boy, I, I love smartphones and I love being able to text. You know, my family moved here from, from Northern California and it was kind of scary to be in a new place, but it's not that hard. I just plug in the GPS in my phone and boom, it gets me where I need to go. I know where my kids are. I know where my wife is. It's so helpful. But there was a day when you had to show up at a certain time at a certain place on purpose because you had no idea where that other person was. Friends, Jesus showed up on purpose. He showed up on purpose with intentionality. Jesus didn't run from his circumstances. He made the appointment according to the plan of the Father. Jesus was there on purpose, and he told his friends to be ready. Our natural tendency, friends, it's to run from rather than approach trials. But Jesus was getting himself ready. He told his disciples to get ready. This is how we face trials. We face it with purpose, with intentionality. We don't just walk into it trusting that, oh yeah, the GPS will guide me. No, no, we must be prepared. We must show up to the battle with purpose. With purpose, Jesus approached the cup. Well, what was that purpose that Jesus had? Well, we see it, he prayed. Secondly, we see this. Prayerfully, Jesus received the cup. Prayerfully, Jesus received the cup. Take a look at Jesus' posture here in verse 41. He says, he withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and he prayed. He got alone to talk with the Father. He knew that there wasn't anybody else in all of creation that could help him. He needed to have the ear of omnipotence. He needed to pour out his soul to the sovereign one. He needed to open up his heart to his loving father. 
Look at his posture there. He's, he's kneeling. Now, Matthew writes that he fell on his face. You can imagine him on his knees, face to the ground, arms out. Oh, this is a kneeling. This is a getting down low to the ground in humility and total dependence. Now, the typical praying posture for uh, those, the God's people at that time, they would stand with arms open wide. Right? But Jesus says, I, I, I'm putting aside all the quorum. I'm throwing that out the window right now. I've got to get down because that's how I feel in my heart. Jesus was desperate. You could hear Jesus groaning as he pours out his soul to the Father. Friends, Jesus expressed not just prayer. He expressed fervent prayer. Now, our outward posture, it doesn't gain us any favor with God inherently, but it does reflect the attitudes of our hearts. One of our key pursuits here at Fairfax Bible Church is this, fervent prayer. Fervent prayer. Not just talking to God and, you know, just kind of going over our little grocery shopping wish list for the day. But it's in those moments of desperation that we wouldn't be ashamed of one another. I see my brother. I see my sister. They're willing to get down on their knees. They might be even shedding tears and, and sweating here in fervent prayer. Oh, I pray that we're a people that are willing to set aside decorum. I hope that we're a people that can understand the gravity of some of the moments that we face in our lives. And we're willing to get on our knees, to even get our faces to the ground and groan and say, Lord, we're desperate. We're here to you today to call out to you in fervent prayer. And that's what it is. It's just that, calling on our God with humble and total dependence upon him. He's not just Santa Claus to sit on his lap. He's the Lord of all creation to whom we bow as we receive his grace in our testing. Sometimes we... We don't know how to cope with our circumstances, and it drives us mad. Why? Because we haven't learned to get down on our knees in desperation and say, Lord, Abba, help me, help me. That's our Jesus getting down low. Take a look at his request. He says this, Father, if, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. If you're willing, remove this cup from me. Matthew says, Father, if you're you are able, he doesn't say if, you are able to deliver me from this. Please remove it from me. Jesus is in full vulnerability mode here. He's expressing his deep feelings to God. I, I don't want to do this, Father. This is the natural feeling every human feels. We're not created for suffering. Suffering is the byproduct. It's the, the consequence of living in a broken world. And in order to redeem this broken world, our Savior had to suffer. But this was foreign to humanity. It was hard. Jesus is confessing what we all feel. I don't want to suffer, God. Take the pain away. Get me out of this. Jesus is expressing a complex set of emotions. He's, he's there on purpose. He says, Lord, I, Father, I'm seeking to do your will. This is my great purpose, but I don't want to do this. It's not just the betrayal, Father. It's not just the mockery. It's, it's not just the beatings. It's, it's not just the exhaustion. The whips are going to hurt. The nails are going to dig in deep. I'm going to be hanging there on that cross. I'm going to thirst. But here's what's really getting to me, Father. It's the crush of your hand. I know what's coming, Father. You're going to lay all the sins of my friends, of my people upon me, and you're going to crush me. 
you're going to forsake me. You'll wound me physically, mentally, emotionally, but ultimately spiritually. I will be forsaken and smitten by you. Oh, I wish there was another way. I wish there was another way. Jesus is getting real with his father. He's getting real. Friends, we, we can get real with our God. We, we can tell him what's going on in our hearts. He already knows it. He already sees it. But he wants to hear it from our mouths. Jesus poured out his heart's desire. We can too. But yet here's the caveat in all this. The next words of Jesus. The resolve. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Despite all the feelings that Jesus felt, his greatest, ultimate, highest desire was his highest purpose. The one thing that satisfied his soul and gave him the deepest sense of joy, it was this. I live to please my Father. Father, I, I wish there was another way, but if this is your way for me, I will do it. We can get real with God, but ultimately, friends, it's in the testing of that moment. It's this. Do I love my comfort? Do I love the thought of getting relief from these circumstances more than I love the will that my Father has for me? Oh, that's the big test for Jesus. I feel it in my humanity, but I am bending the feelings of my humanity to the perfect sovereign will of my Father. Jesus says this. Here's why he obeys the Father. John 14, 31, he says, I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I love the Father. Jesus loved his own life, but he loved the Father more. Friends, that's what it comes down to on our time of testing. Oh, we feel the pain, but do we love the Father more? Do we see our greatest, highest satisfaction in him? This was Jesus' resolve after his request. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Why? Jesus prayerfully received the cup. We see his request. We, receive, we see his resolve. We experience this on some level a little bit, right? I know when I'm around the house and I've got things that I'm doing, my, my wife has this great little question that she asks me. Matthew, would you like to help me do this? <laughs> right? Would you like to help me do this? You know, it's, I, I'm cooking dinner. Would you like to help me chop some of the ingredients? Would you like to help me by emptying the dishwasher out so we could load the dirty dishes in there? Matthew, would you like to help me just fill in the blank? And it makes me chuckle every time she does it. You know, it's almost as if, would I really like to do the task? Of course not. But, but, but what she is saying is this, Matthew, would you like to help me? Would you like to do something for me? And there's been many times I just, there's this, this, this battle that goes on in my heart. It's like, I don't want to do this, but look at the person who's asking me to do it. I love her so much. And there's times I've failed it big time. It's like, no, I don't want to do that. And I walk out of the room. And then the Lord convicts my heart. I said, look at this woman that I've given to you. Friend, we could hate the task, but we could love the one who asks us to complete the task. 
Jesus in this moment, he sees the will of the Father. He hears his Father's voice and he says, Lord, take this from me. But Lord, I love you more than I love my desires. I want to do what pleases you. Sometimes we've got to kneel in prayer long enough to get our hearts aligned to the will and the desires of God's will. Sometimes we feel like, I don't want to do this. That means you, you got up from your knees too soon. we got to spend some time and soak in the presence of God. It takes some fervent agonizing when our heart's desires are crushed by God's perfect plan for us. It takes time and prayer to let Him rebuild, rebuild our desires according to His will. Jesus prayed as He received the cup. He received it. He received it. But it doesn't stop there. Thirdly, passionately, passionately, Jesus braced himself to drink the cup. Passionately, he braced himself to drink the cup. It says here that an angel appeared from heaven to strengthen him. Now, we, we see it in the ministry of Jesus. Angels appear at, at, at sometimes in another, but one time they appeared, we see it in, in Matthew and Mark, that they appeared at his temptation in the wilderness. Angels are appearing because Jesus is under trial. He's being tempted. He's, he's at odds here between his human desires, which aren't wrong, and the perfect will of God, which is perfect. And he's in a test. And we see the, the demonstration of that text, uh, test in these verses. It says in verse 44, being in agony, striving, wrestling, battling with his desires and the will of God, he prayed more earnestly. More fervently. And, it, and, the, and the, the, the interaction here is so intense. The spiritual warfare, the battle here is so intense that Jesus begins to physically exert himself so much. It says that sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He's just sweating so much that it's almost as if he's been cut and he's bleeding because he's exerting. He's loving the Lord his God with all his strength, all of his strength, everything he has, it's coming out, it's being poured out to him in this fervent prayer. This is the greatest test that Jesus ever faced. We saw testing in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says, the devil departed from Jesus after testing him in the wilderness, but then it says he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan knows, I can't get him here, but I'm going to wait for an opportune time. We fast forward to Luke 22, verse 53, just a, a little ways after this. It says, uh, Jesus tells the, the, his accusers, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay your hands on me. But this is your hour, and this is the power of darkness. I'm facing Satan head on. I'm facing this, this temptation head on, this great trial, this great test that Jesus is going through. And the battle is happening here in the garden. He was sweating like it was great drops of blood. Jesus didn't have to stay there. He didn't have to stay there. Matthew 26, 53 says this. Uh, Jesus says this. He says, don't you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? On a human level, he didn't have to stay there. He had the, the power of omnipotence on his fingertips, but he says, I'm here for a greater purpose. And so Jesus braced himself to drink the cup. Jesus stayed. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed earnestly. He prayed fervently. He prayed passionately. He prayed with all his heart. 
With all his strength, he was loving God in this moment, though every human inclination told him to go. Jesus was bracing himself for what was coming. And he didn't get up until he was ready. After this, we see Jesus was resolved. As we see these images, as we go on throughout the next few weeks, we're going to see that Jesus, he's not battling like he was battling here in the garden. This is where he made his decision. And after this, we see Jesus in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Because he had already poured out his soul to the Father. The moment of testing was in the garden. Jesus grasped the cup in the garden for you and for me in our place. So what does he do? He, he gets up and he comes to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. Oh, sad story. I see myself in that, don't you? They weren't ready. They gave in to the sorrow. See, there's this, there's this uh, contrast between the agony of Jesus fighting through the desires. He's battling through it. And the disciples, they just give in. They're so sorrowful. Friends, don't give in. Don't give in when the trial comes. Don't give in when the temptation comes. With Jesus, we can agonize through it and trust him through it through earnest and fervent prayer. Some of you are watching March Madness, right? I'm loving it. We've got a champion that's going to be coming here in the next, I think, 10 days or whatever. But what's interesting is you see this journey and the tournament gets so intense. You see the teams that succeed and the teams that fail. The teams that succeed are the ones that fight through, that agonize through the ups and downs, through the runs of the other team when they just start getting hot behind the three-point line and they don't give up, they don't buckle, they don't break. Then you see the other teams and they eventually just give up. You could see it in their body language. You could see it in the way they're hustling. They just stop doing it. They give in. Friends, Jesus didn't give in. He agonized through it. He embraced the cup. He grasped the cup. And he passionately braced himself to drink the cup. Jesus grasped the cup of suffering in our place. The writer of Hebrews comments on Jesus' suffering and in this trial, in this moment, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 9, it says this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, or think of complete there, completion, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's what, what, what was at stake in the garden. Eternal salvation to all who obey this one who embraced and received and grasped the cup of suffering in our place. He did it for you. He did it for me so that we could enjoy eternal salvation. Jesus grasped the cup of suffering in our place. Friends, I don't know how many times you've been in testing and trial like this. I know many times the grade I would get is an F. An F failed, Matthew. You failed in the time of testing. You failed in the time of trial. Friends, here today because of this one in our place, we can trust in the one who through all the trial, through all the testing, through fervent prayer, he grasped the cup and the father looked down on him and said, A plus for you and for me. In our place, he took our suffering. 
in our place. What does this mean for Monday? What does this mean for the moments that we're going to experience tomorrow and the day after? Because the Christian life is not lived in an hour and 20 to 30 minutes on Sunday morning in a middle school. It's lived out in the everyday stuff of life that you have and I have. What does this idea that Jesus grasped the cup of suffering in our place, what does that mean for me tomorrow? Well, friends, I think this. I want to challenge all of us, especially during this Easter season, because we all have cups of hardship. We all experience brokenness. We all have little tidbits and morsels of suffering, some more than others. I look around this room, and I'm starting to get to learn your stories a little bit better as I spend time as your pastor and as your brother and as your friend. And there's suffering represented in this room. There's heartache. There's brokenness. Some of the cups that, that we're called to drink are bitter. All of us, once we've lived life long enough, on this globe, we experience that cup of suffering in some shape or form that we're called to drink. But friends, because Jesus grasped the cup of suffering in our place, we never have to drink that cup. We may have cups that we're called to drink, but that cup of standing in our place, bearing the iniquities for our sins, receiving the penalty and the punishment that you and I deserve, that's a cup we never have to drink. Jesus drank that cup for you and for me. The worst cup that we could ever experience. Eternal damnation. The wrath of God for our sins. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm going to let you stand out of the way. That penalty, that punishment, the consequences of your sin. Get out of the way, Matthew. I will drink that cup. You will never drink that. Jesus grasped the cup of suffering for sin in our place. In our place. Now, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you may experience trials, temptations, maybe just even just daily annoyances. And I don't know, as Christians, I think we've kind of become good at coming up with our own Christian curse words, right? Right? In fact, there's a comedian, you can look him up online, Christian curse words, right? And it's hilarious, right? And he doesn't cuss in it, but he's just coming up with these ways that we like to just express that frustration in these moments without actually saying, you know, the words that, you know, you really shouldn't be saying, right? Right? Especially around children, right? Uh, or, or in your car or whatever when someone cuts you off. But, oh, friends, we've been called to something even better than just coming up with Christian curse words. We can be filled with thanksgiving. We can say, you know what, Lord, right now, this cup, it's bitter. This is so hard. But as we look to the Savior who grasped the cup of suffering for sin in our place, we can turn that moment into a moment of thanksgiving. We can say, Lord, this cup, it's bitter, it's painful. But thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to drink that cup. I don't have to drink that cup of suffering for sin. This cup, it's hard. Peter, the apostles, eventually they would, Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter himself would eventually be hung on a cross. But he says this, I don't have to drink that cup though. That, that, that suffering on the cross that my Savior experienced was far deeper, far more intense than I will ever experience. I suffer here in a moment, but tomorrow I'll be with him in paradise. My Jesus bled and died for me, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him so that he would drink that cup. But Jesus has drunk it all to the full for me. 
So friends, I want to challenge you tomorrow, the next day, the day after that. Oh, when we feel tempted to come up with our own sanctified Christian cuss words, we could turn those moments and say, no, 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 I'm going to give thanks. Because although this cup may be bitter today, I thank you, Father, that you sent your son who drank that cup for me in my place. In my place. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we see your son in this live image this morning, agonizing in this garden over what he was about to experience experiencing the cup of suffering, becoming that suffering servant of Isaiah who said, yes, I will be that man of sorrows. I will be crushed by the Father. I will have the iniquity of my people and the sins and their transgressions placed upon me that I may bear their sin in my suffering. Father, this is amazing love. This is love like no other kind that we have in all the world. And we see it. Jesus grasped the cup of suffering for sin in our place. Lord Jesus, we want to speak to you for a moment. And in our hearts, we want to tell you thank you. Thank you for grasping that cup in our place. Thank you for getting there on purpose. Thank you for praying fervently in that moment and receiving the cup. And thank you that you passionately agonized through it and you didn't run away so that you would take that cup in our place. As we go about our week this, this week, Father, I, I ask that you would transform our mouths into mouths that curse the little cups that we face all throughout the week into moments to reflect and be honest, and get down on our, on our knees maybe, in fervent prayer, just like our Lord, and say, Lord, this is bitter, this is hard, but yet we can be filled with thanksgiving to say, although I drink this cup, thank you, Father, that I don't have to drink that cup. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, I pray that as we go about as your people this week, even with our ones, I pray that they would see that we're people that could give thanks even as we drink bitter cups. That we could be the people to say, this cup is bitter, my friend, but I want you to know that my Jesus drank the cup of suffering for sin in my place. Give us thankful hearts. Give us worshipful hearts in this Easter season as we honor you, the one who drank the cup of suffering in our place.